This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target and destroy cancer-causing proteins right inside the cell. It's how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. We're on Coverville Island on the Antarctic Peninsula, standing smack dab in the middle of a bustling colony of Gentoo penguins. It's like a little penguin Times Square. A dozen or so stand along the beach. Dozens more are waddling up and down the steep hill above us, struggling to stay upright on their little orange feet. At both ends of the beach, hundreds are packed together, sitting in the sun on their homemade rocky nests. This is industrial-scale penguin life. But for Ron Naveen, it's just another day at the office. Bingo. This 73-year-old, white-haired, white-bearded man is walking gingerly on the rocks. He's got an old-fashioned clicker counter in his hands. And he's doing what he's been doing for almost 40 years, counting penguins. Oh. Oh. Hi, buddy. Back in the 1980s, Ron created an advocacy group called Oceanites. Its mission is to track and monitor the three main species that live here. I've gone through all kinds of iterations in my life, being a lawyer, an expedition tour leader, and I keep winding up watching birds. I can't believe it. I have the best job on the planet. Is that right? Well, I'm a penguin counter, for God's sake. (laughs) Can't beat that, can you? No, I don't think you can. From the PBS NewsHour, this is The Last Continent, a four-part journey to Antarctica. I'm William Brangham. Over the decades that you've been coming here counting all these birds, do you have any sense of of a cumulative number, how many penguins you've actually counted? Uh, That's an unbelievably difficult question. It's like asking me how many times I've crossed the Great Passage. I don't know. Undoubtedly, hundreds of millions. Ron mostly works here on the peninsula, which is the 800-mile-long stretch of land off the continent's northwest corner. He studies gentoos, which are the size of upright footballs, white on the belly, black on the back, orange on the beak. The other penguins are adelies and chinstraps, both a little smaller than the gentoos. Adelies are known for the distinctive white ring around their eyes. Chinstraps get their name for the little black line running across their faces. It's not uncommon for us to just sit down. I do this all the time. I mean, these are the most glorious creatures on the planet. They're teaching me a lot. But they're really funny. They're like little human beings. They're waddling around all the time. They look kind of silly and all that stuff. But they're just cute as hell, and I love spending time watching their behaviors. Ron's right. When they're tottering around on land, balancing with their two wings, the flightless penguins seem kind of out of place. So they dip their head in, kind of get used to the water temperature or whatever, and then under the arms, round the flippers, and boom. The minute the birds enter the water, they transform instantly into the most incredibly fast, aerodynamic, acrobatic swimmers. 
look at them go underwater. Zoom, zoom, zoom. You look. I know, it's incredible. Literally flying underwater. Gentoos can reach 22 miles per hour underwater. Michael Phelps, he tops out at six. Ron's watched these birds swim like this a million times before. But standing with him on this beach, you'd think this was his first time. I could watch this all day. Me too. Here's my colleague on this trip, Emily Carpo, describing Ron. When you see him, he seems so awkward and kind of like a little bit silly. And then you hear him start talking about penguins and the things he's passionate about. And it's just like his exceptional intelligence comes through. And it kind of reminds me, it's like when penguins are on land, they look like they do not belong there and they are not prepared to be dealing with hard land. And then the minute they get into water, you're like, oh, that's what they're meant for. (laughs) This guy's going crazy over here. Back and forth and back and forth. Whoa! I used to think that if I was granted a superpower that flying might be what it is, but I'm starting to think now that maybe to be able to swim like a Gentoo might be top of my list. I'm right there with you, man. They are really, really incredible. At each penguin colony they visit, Ron and his colleagues are trying to make a literal head count of the birds. How many adults? How many chicks? How many eggs? They're building a year-by-year census of the penguins. Given that the birds can move around, to be as accurate as possible, Ron and his team divide areas into rough grids and count the areas as quickly as possible. So what I'm going to do is head up to the high ridge and work down to the snow where the snow comes in. You'll be going up the side here and we'll meet right at the top. Yeah, by the time that you get that... Uh, That's Grant Humphreys. He's a seabird biologist who's working with Ron on this trip. He's a big, burly, bearded guy from Newfoundland. Antarctic penguins are just unbelievable animals. You know, they've been around for 60 million years, um, basically to a degree in the same form that you're seeing them now. I mean, you see them here sitting on the rocks. They look like rugby balls. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they just they just don't look like they're made for anything. And here we are on top of this this hill here. They've come up from the water and hiked up through deep snow, up over the rocks and all that to get up here. And it's not like they have hands. I mean, they're clawing and and fighting their way up. It is spectacular how hardy these animals are. We'll have snowshoes on, our hiking poles and all that, and we'll stream on up to the top of the mountain. We get up there and these guys are beating us. They're just, you know, unfreaking believable. But yeah, I mean... They are that, no doubt. But just like they don't tell you how rough the seas will be on your way to Antarctica, nobody really tells you how bad these penguin colonies smell. The term of art for penguin poop is guano, but that does not do it justice. It's everywhere, caked on the rocks, all over our boots, permeating our clothes. It smells awful. Here's Emily again and our other colleague, Mike Fritz. And what's funny is I don't think that I had any idea of just how much there would be and then how they would kind of wear it themselves (laughs) with such dignity. I mean, they would just kind of have it on their chest and they didn't really care. If anyone has seen those pictures of the penguins and you see their sort of red or or, or white splotches all over their chest, it's not mud. (laughs) It's, It's not mud. It can be a difficult life here for the penguins. While it's summertime now and a balmy 20 degrees Fahrenheit, 
Winters are five below zero with fierce winds. And there's predators everywhere. Big gray seabirds called skuas circle overhead constantly, always ready to dive down and grab a chick or a warm egg. In the sea, where the penguins spend most of their lives, there's killer whales and leopard seals. In fact, Grant spotted one when we were on Coverville Island. So there's a leopard seal right now cruising towards us, somewhere underwater. His head came up a few minutes ago, um, possibly hunting, which would be very, very cool. Hunting our little Gentoo friends? Hunting our little Gentoo friends and then ripping him to shreds. The goal is to actually skin the bird because they don't want to eat the feathers and skin. It's not so... Not so delectable as the innards. Um, And they'll thrash them and thrash them until basically all you're left is a muscular figure of a penguin floating in the water, and then they'll start ripping into it. It's very, very violent and very bloody, and it's so primal. It's been like this for the penguins for millennia, and they've survived and thrived. But now, human-induced climate change is also transforming the Antarctic Peninsula, and Ron and other researchers believe it's taking a toll on the penguins. For decades, this region has been one of the fastest warming spots in the world. Right here in the Antarctic Peninsula, there's been a warming trend over the last six decades or more. It's actually the most amount of warming on the planet other than in the high Arctic. Right here. Right here. And it's dramatic. It's 3 degrees centigrade, 5 degrees Fahrenheit on a year-round basis. At the the same time, certain penguin colonies have also been hit hard. I also, because I've been coming here for so long, I've seen these changes. I've seen the penguin populations at certain colonies thin out pretty dramatically. One colony that we studied at Deception Island has gone from an estimated 90,000 breeding pairs to 50 or fewer, 50,000 or fewer. 90,000 down to 50? Yes. That's a huge problem. Right. Just for reference, that's like Tallahassee, Florida, losing almost half its population. So you've got to suspect strongly that climate is implicated. Precisely how that's sorting out uh, is going to be a very complicated question. Now, there's no direct link that warmer temperatures are what are causing these declines, but researchers point to several pieces of circumstantial evidence. The penguin's main food source is a small, shrimp-like creature called krill. They're about the size of your pinky finger, and everything down here eats them. Krill is also commercially harvested for fish food and human supplements, but climate change can harm them too, and their numbers are down. Claire Christian runs the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition, an advocacy group. There are some species in the Antarctic, like whales, that can travel thousands of miles. When penguins are, you know, raising their chicks, they can only go so far every day before they have to go back and feed the chick. So if there isn't krill within the area that they can travel to, they're at risk of of losing those chicks for the year. Ron says his data indicate the Adelis and the chin straps have taken these changes very hard, but the Gentoos, on the other hand, seem to be thriving. Ron says Gentoos can swim a little further and a little deeper, which gives them more range, but they've also diversified their diet, and they're starting to eat more fish. All the penguins here could eat more fish, but only the Gentoos seem to be doing it. The Gentoos have really made the big switch. The Adelis and Chinstraps just haven't apparently picked up on the fact they need to start eating more of it. I keep 
thinking that it'd be great to converse with these guys and say, eat more fish, eat more fish, but I don't speak a deli or chinstrap. The warming environment has also triggered a seemingly contradictory effect on the Antarctic Peninsula. It's triggering more snowfall, which can cover the birds' nests and disrupt their breeding. But again, the Gentoo seem to be adapting by laying their eggs a second time. I think it highlights that there are going to be climate change winners and there's going to be some climate change losers. Heather Lynch is an evolutionary biologist from Stony Brook University in New York, and she's one of Ron's regular research partners. We met her in Argentina just as she'd finished her latest trip to Antarctica. What's surprising is how similar these three species of penguins are. They breed in the same places, they largely eat the same things, they're breeding at the same time, they lay two eggs. So what's surprising to me is that the very small, subtle differences that they do have are actually the difference between being a climate change winner and a climate change loser. So one of the real take-home messages here, I think, from the Gentoo penguins' perspective is that flexibility and plasticity is going to be really key to adapting and even thriving in a climate change environment. And I think there's a real lesson for us as people, as communities, as cities. We're all going to have to figure out what's going to work in the future. And it may look very different than what's worked in the past. Penguins are us, you might say. Uh, They breathe the same air. They have to have food, a good home, a good environment. If one of those falls out of sync, it's troubling. So my question, you might say, in a very general euphemistic way, are we going to be gentoos in the future? Or are we going to have a sinking population like some of the chinstrap and Adelie populations? I'm really concerned. Meaning, are we going to figure out either how to stop this warming or how to adapt to it? I don't know if we're going to be able to stop it. What I've been focusing a lot uh, upon is whether we're going to be able to adapt. On our last day in Antarctica with Ron and Grant, we visited a chinstrap penguin colony. It's cold and windy, and the rain has mixed the dirt and guano together into a sticky, stinky soup. But the two men are in their usual playful mood, happy to show off their best chinstrap impressions. I guess we're not going to get it on this season, Grant. No, I don't Maybe think so. I think we're failed breeders. Failed breeders. Failed breeders. Chinstraps are Ron's favorite. They're the first penguins he ever saw here, but he also loves them because they're tenacious. Chinstrap penguins run right up to you. They want to see your passport, where you're from, who are you. (laughs) Then they back off. Do you think these guys know that they're your favorite? Um, I would have to be honest and say no. Uh, I don't speak chinstrap, nor do they speak English. But I must say, in my quiet moments, I do go into my... And I sometimes get a response. So I'd like to think that some of my guys know who I There's am. There's some cross-species communication going Yeah, on. I guess so, but uh, I'm, I'm dreaming. At 73, after doing this for nearly half of his life, Ron Devine says he's not ready for this work to be over. I get very wistful and uh, teary-eyed, to be honest. It's my last day in the Antarctic for this season, I do want to come back. I'm intending to come back. I've been doing this forever. I want, I'm not ready to hang up the penguin clicker. Uh, but I'll have a few moments later this afternoon with my favorite guys sitting down there communing with them. Uh, I'll go back to the ship and have a big, fat smile on my face. I'm, I'm the luckiest guy on the planet. Mm-hmm. 
on the next episode. For thousands of years, Antarctica was just an idea. You have these old maps which show a version of Antarctica, usually referred to as Terra Australis Incognita, the great unknown southern continent. How a couple of bottles of Ukrainian vodka, prost, 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 eleven babies, and one Cold War diplomatic treaty helped tell the story of Antarctica's past and present. Even between two extreme adversaries like the Soviet Union and the United States, you could in fact declare some areas off limits to that kind of, of rivalry. That's on the next episode of The Last Continent. If you want to see Antarctica and those charming penguins and meet Ron and Grant and everyone we talked with, visit our website, pbs.org/newshour/thelastcontinent. There you can find our video series that first aired on the Newshour broadcast plus other photographs and extras. And to hear all four episodes of The Last Continent, make sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Last Continent was produced by Vika Aronson, Mike Fritz, Emily Carpo, and me, William Brangham. Editing by Erica R. Hendry. Production assistance by Chris Ford. Fact-checking was done by Sikon Akpan, Maya Lene Bura, Amber Partida, and Zoe Rorick. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Travis Daub, Vanessa Dennis, Brennan Butler, Stefan Rode, James Williams, Julia Griffin, Dan Cooney, Dima Zane, Malia Posey, Adam Saraf, and Laura Strum. Thanks also to Dan Devaney and Bruce Kane at WETA-FM. Sarah Just is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. And please don't forget to let us know what you think of the show. Tweet us at NewsHour or leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. I do consider myself very proudly a chinstrap penguin. And how about your uh, friendly NewsHour crew? (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of you, my dear Emily, is certainly a chinstrap and higher up on the boisterous scale than I am. You guys are more in the Gen 2 category, just such nice, gentlemanly guys. But uh, Emily and I have you figured out, and we know how to nail you. <laughs>